Joanna Leinhag is a rock star of science-engaged theology. She is a theologian who's currently a lecturer at St. Andrews University in Scotland, and she teaches a bunch of classes that I want to take, including Science, Religion, and the Mind, Saints and Cyborgs, The Problem of Evil, Evolution, Tsunamis, and God, Holy Scripture, Sacred Earth, The Bible and Ecology. I don't know about you, but I want to take all of those classes with Joanna. We have a really great conversation, which you're about to hear. We talk a lot about her work on autism and how the church should be inclusive of autistic people and what autistic people have to teach us about how God works and how God reveals God's self through the material world. Um, And we talk about the implications her research has for the church. I really loved talking to Joanna and I hope you enjoy the conversation. So my name's Joanna Leidenhag. I'm a lecturer in science-engaged theology. I got into theology quite unexpectedly as an undergraduate. I actually came to university to study English literature, but discovered that as a Christian, probing the questions of my faith was really exciting and challenging in a good way and something I wanted to continue doing. So I switched my major to history and theology. And then even after finishing my first degree, just wanted to keep going. So I went to Princeton Theological Seminary in the States and then came back to the UK for my PhD in Edinburgh. Before you like geared towards theology, what did you think you wanted to do? I don't think I was entirely sure, though I was always drawn to forms of teaching. There are quite a few teachers in my family and I was quite drawn particularly to teaching like a 16 to 18 year olds sometimes we have colleges just for 16 to 18 year olds mm-hmm. um i didn't know about really university lecturers but i apparently there's this really cute thing i wrote you know when you're 10 and it's like what do you want to be when you grow up and i think i wrote i want to be a teacher but i don't want to teach kids and i don't want to teach this is terrible but i don't want to teach stupid adults so <laughs> very precocious 10 year old um, <laughs> Which I kind of realized now probably means I wanted to be a university lecturer, but I just didn't know that at the time. (laughs) Um, Or higher levels of educational teaching. So, yeah. (laughs) That's awesome. I really care about helping people, in one sense, go through the process I went through and found really helpful, which was questioning my faith and learning to do that in a way that enhances it rather than undermines it. And I think the truth always defends itself. So... I don't feel very defensive about it. I don't mind if my students are asking really uncomfortable questions. I think that's really good. And a big part of what I see my role as at university is helping a wide range of students do that. Introducing Christianity to those who haven't really encountered it before and that destabilizes their worldviews in that way. And then people who have grown up Christians, helping them think through some of the tougher questions that actually kind of get ignored in churches or other Christian groups and get brushed under the surface. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good. So when did you start to feel like you wanted to or needed to start engaging some sciences or some empirical research? I During my PhD, I was surrounded by quite a few people who were doing science and religion explicitly. And it wasn't what my PhD was about. But I was therefore already kind of involved in a culture of of thinking through that relationship primarily in a kind of big picture way and seeing its its importance and its cultural its cultural importance really 
that for a lot of people, they can't get past it. But for the psychology specifically, it's when uh, my research turned from kind of metaphysical abstract questions in a slightly more personal direction in that I wanted to look at autistic spectrum disorders or autism and mm. because several members of my family have autism and so that's just the background I grew up with and I didn't think there was very much theology to do there that's just like my family right, right. they're just that's just my world but I started reading some uses and some descriptions of autism in theology that I thought didn't represent what I knew and all the people that I love and so I wanted to challenge that um, and to get involved in a kind of theology autism conversation yeah. and for that you need some psychology yeah, <laughs> you need to know what sure. autism is you need to know what the best theories around it are let's talk about some of those those ways that autism was being referenced that sort of you found unsettling and I think this is the background of that theologically is some work in the area of theological anthropology is that correct or yes I think so so this is an argument I've made that really in the background to some of the problems that I started to see was a movement that's been very popular in theology to um, move away from focusing on our rational capacities, our ability to think in certain ways, do math, say, or will, have free will, and instead say that what's really special about humans or what's theologically interesting about humans isn't how we think, but how we relate to other people and how we relate to God. And I think there's so much that's good in that, that's placing love at the center of who we understand ourselves to be and who we understand God to be. But as more and more theologians wanted to do that, they started, as tends to happen, to look at this concept of like relationships and relationality, the ability to relate to others in more and more precise ways. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. <laughs> but what tended to happen was that there became a kind of set of criteria around what it means to relate in this really special way. So I might relate to, I don't know, my coffee cup who's in front of me in a spatial way. There's nothing particularly interesting about that. But I want to relate to my husband in a loving way. And that's like much more theologically interesting. And so there were so all sorts of criteria started to build up around what it means to relate in a loving way or in a in this special way, in a theological way. And I think that just as autism was starting to be discovered by psychologists and labeled and kind of examined, so theologians were doing this work on relationality. And I think the two have kind of become entangled so that we came to define theologically interesting relationships as those sorts of things that autistic people can't do mm. um, and that's what I saw happening in the literature that kind of got me thinking about this to start with was treatments in just the last 20 years that really explicitly say autism is a, a kind of state of sin or a state without grace or mm. make it implicitly impossible to think of an autistic person as a Christian and that's clearly wrong right clearly wrong there are plenty of autistic people in churches who are Christians who have loving relationships it just doesn't meet up to the reality of autism and so there is something that's gone wrong here that I wanted to untangle and, and set right yeah yeah that's clearly problematic for sure yeah. <laughs> how, so how was it when you 
you know, you're going into this research area with this personal experience of autistic people that you know and love, and then you start digging into the research around autism. How did that change things for you or open things up for you? Like, did you discover anything that was surprising or just did it just help give more depth to your understanding or... Yeah, it's, I think the constant challenge is the, to remember that, as the famous saying goes in, in autism research, when you've met one autistic person, you've met one autistic person, and because it's such a range. So it's, I often think about my brother and other members of my family, but they aren't paradigmatic of autism because I don't think there is such a thing as a kind of paradigm of autism. Mm. Each autistic person is very different and the way their autism manifests is different sometimes too. And this creates a huge challenge for the psychologists who want to study autism or for um, clinicians and doctors who are trying to diagnose, particularly children who may or may not have autism and or maybe there's something else that's um, making life difficult for them. You know, so... Mm-hmm. It's a, it is a it is a huge challenge for that reason for me and for others. You know, when you have particular people that that you think of as paradigms because they're the people you've known your whole life, but they're not paradigms universally. Right, right. So that sort of just expanded your view of what it, what even autism is or meant. But like also, <laughs> just neurotypical folks have a very like broad range of skills and abilities too. So I, theologically, that's always the challenge, right? That's like the reason for this ongoing work is like, how do we define a person, define a human, understand Imago Dei in a way that like gets everybody in that like, isn't, I mean, do you think that's correct? Or do you think that's Um, I do think that's, uh, one of the challenges, yeah, to make sure we're not, yeah, creating a norm that is actually leaving people out. I mean, that's that's the kind of, as you can imagine, one of the motivating things for me. And I think the way to handle it is to place the people who have sometimes been left out explicitly or implicitly. And this can be disability, like autism, or it can be race or gender or other things, and place them at the centre Um, And say, if we start with this as the norm, it's not really the norm. It's just another way of being, another form of embodiment. But if we just start with it as if it was also normative, how would that change our theologies, our ideas about what it means to be made in the image of God or um, other such kind of theological ideas? So that's what I'm trying to do with autism, really. If think about it, imagine it was normative for a second rather than this kind of minority group of people that think differently. Yeah. Um, Yeah. That's a cool exercise. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's it is a cool exercise. We always <laughs> want to put ourselves at the center, you know, or people like us or something. That's like our natural human inclination, I think. Right. But yeah, getting away from that is important. Have you gotten any pushback against this research project or people challenging it? Are people taking the corrective? I mean, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's a little bit yet to be seen. Okay. Um, it's still kind of a being slowly being published, slowly coming out. Sure. Um, in conversation, I've had a few interesting kind of little pushbacks. You know, they're just like critical questions type yeah. pushbacks. So on the normative question that I just explained, it's like the the challenge of, for example, an autistic person said to me, in fact, but I don't want to be like this. You know, I, I, I don't think this is normative. There are things I can't do or I constantly say things that are misunderstood. And, you know, mm-hmm. you know it makes my friendships very difficult. Life 
as an autistic person in a neurotypical world can be really hard and can contain a lot of suffering. So there's been some pushback in terms of in terms of the way that I'm approaching this is to say, oh, there's nothing wrong with it. And actually, I don't think there is anything wrong with it. But there's been some pushback to think mm, through that suffering. Really that, interesting. Yeah. There's also been some pushback around interesting, like, well, not everyone can be normative. <laughs> um, and it will make our theology too messy. And um, instead, we should just focus on Jesus. And he wasn't autistic, as far as we know. So that's another kind of challenge to which my answer is, first of all, as far as we know, I think it's quite good that we don't know that much about Jesus's biology or psychology. But also that when we're looking at Jesus, we're also looking at Jesus's body, which is the church. And the body of Christ is autistic in part because there are autistic people in it. So it's a different kind of not just looking at the man, Jesus, but also at the identity between him and his church is doing a lot of work for me there too. What do you think about Imago Day? Like, where are you at with how you how you think of what it means to be made in, in the image of God? Is that, I guess something I always wonder is sometimes theologians speak about the image of God being something that we're all working to try to attain like we're like proto images of God almost and sometimes theologians use it as the the concept that gives us all our inherent worth and value and so it's a state of some sort yeah I, I mean That's image of God question. stuff is a mess in theology <laughs> um, for sure I don't think I think there's no I don't like using it as a state to ground our dignity and our worth. I doubt the world is going to change on that anytime soon. It's handy, but I don't like it. I don't like it for a couple of reasons. One is that it's not something that we typically want to expand to the non-human realm. And I worry about the ethical implications of that. I don't think we should have such a hard and fast line between human ethics and values and animal ethics and values. I think mm. there's a gradation to have there. Like it is mm. different. Don't get me wrong, but it's not like the Imago Dei used in that way tends to create a very hard line. Um, Sometimes that's the point is to create the hard line, right? Right. And I, I think we should care a lot about each other and we have a lot of dignity and value, but I don't think it needs to be in competition with the rest of the world Interesting. and the environment and other animals. Interesting. And the other thing is, it to be in the image of an invisible God doesn't really make any sense until the incarnation. Um, God doesn't have an image until the really until the incarnation, and then it makes sense. Um, first of all, that because God took on flesh and became imageable, became something you could see, and then also makes sense why we're given the image in Genesis because we're the same species. We're we're like Christ. So I tend towards this kind of Jesus-centered or Christological understanding of the image of God. And that moves it more towards this as well, this thing that we attain. So it's something we are because we're like Jesus, but we're not perfectly like Jesus. We clearly also need to become more like Jesus. Mm -hmm. So you, you can kind of smuggle in both the permanent state and the ethical imperative to this one which is quite nice <laughs> <laughs> no that's a good move that's a good move so what like what sort of constructive things so if you do that exercise of the of taking the the autistic person as normative what sort of 
positive, constructive ideas come from that? Or is that still a work in progress? Um, it's a work in process, but I can give you some hints. Mm -hmm. um, what I'm trying to do is work through all the different criteria that are currently used for diagnosing autism. So this is relying more on the psychological um, literature and, and diagnosis category than it is in its structure than autistic experience. But then after that structure is laid out, I'm trying to bring in autistic experience into that. So... For example, one of the diagnostic criteria is um, that's new, newer actually, and becoming more prominent is around different types of sensing um, and sen so hypersensitivities and hyposensitivities to what you hear, what you see, what you touch, what you smell. I mean, that sort of sensitivity. And that autistic people seem to process the world differently. So they might have perfectly good vision physically. There's nothing wrong with their eyes, but actually the colours that they see are different or oh, there's nothing wrong with their tongue, but actually fizzy drinks really hurt or it can mm -hmm. only ha handle very plain food or whatever it is. And it can it's different for every autistic person, but what ties them together is that it's different effectively. So what I'm thinking about with that is a kind of awareness of, of every human being's interpretation of our sensory environment. That actually when we sense things, that's not just the way they are, that they're going through an interpretative process um and that's really clear with autism because of this difference because for some people fizzy drinks hurt and other people love them right but uh, that means that it's true for all of us that we're interpreting the world in certain ways yes and this can then get really theologically rich when we bring it into kind of what's happening in the sensory environment of worship say when people sense the presence of god or when they're using smoke machines to have a visual effect or incense to have a smelling effect right that actually there's something possible about that that doesn't say god looks like a smoke machine or whatever or smells like incense but that we can use these sensory environments as interpretative tools to try and still engage with god in different ways so do you see what i mean there's a couple of steps there yeah no i see um, yeah the move from the autistic to sort of using that as a tool to see how our brains work generally. And then putting that into a more theological context or question. Yeah. And there's anecdotes from scripture and just from our life in a Christian community that, that God seems to work and com communicate with everybody in such different ways. Just the way that some people have a God experience out in nature very easily, whereas other people, we need to sit in a circle with other Christians and talk and, you know, like other, all these different things. Some people want to be alone. Some people want to be in among the multitudes, you know? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think what we tend to, what we tend to assume though, is that like the material world is getting in the way when actually we're all just using the material world differently mm -hmm. to communicate with God. It's it, the material world is God's creation and it's, mm -hmm. God, I think God uses it to speak to us. We don't need to get, you know, we're not, we're not trying to work around it to some like pure spirituality. You know, some things obviously can be a distraction, but that's not because they're material. Right. <laughs> that's maybe because we're not attending to them in the right way. Right. You know? yeah, yeah, that's so true. Yeah. And it's also very good to not universalize the, like as a minister, to not assume that everyone needs to experience God in a certain way. Everybody needs to you know, that one thing's going to work for everybody or, or something like that. Right, exactly. It's just, 
It's just not, we're much more interesting than that. <laughs> <laughs> for sure, for sure. Do you think you could just explain what the Invita, I don't know, are you guys saying Invita, N-V-I-T-A or whatever? Uh, can you just explain what that initiative looks like? Yeah, so Navita or Envita stands for New Visions in Theological Anthropology. And it's a Templeton grant and project to help train theologians in one sense, much like this uh, Theosite project, to engage more with the sciences, um, particularly around theological anthropology. So any of the sciences that's going to help us understand human beings better. So that can be evolutionary biology, or it can be psychology, or it can be um, anthropology. I don't know, something else, right? But we have a number of outputs. So we have some workshops and we have, but we also have teaching outputs, pedagogical outputs to help move science-engaged theology out of just the research sphere where it's kind of started into more influencing how people teach. And we hope that it will influence both kind of science and religion courses where those exist, but also just general courses in theology. And again, particularly in theological anthropology, that when we're teaching stuff like the Imago Dei, we might actually include some science. Seems like that might be good, because <laughs> otherwise you just end up making a lot of, I don't know, you reference a lot of intuitions and just anecdotal observations about what people are like. Yeah, or repeat things that you were told in theology class 20 years ago that just aren't true. We now don't think are true, don't think. Right, exactly. <laughs> and what about these theological puzzle things? Oh, yeah. Right, so those puzzle- are? Yeah, we came up with this idea of a theological puzzle, which is just like to help. In fact, it was really inspired by something that Justin had said, I think, in to help theologians really identify when they're asking the type of question or making the type of claim that actually would really benefit from engaging some science. Um, And so we just label when a theologian does that, that's the sort of thing we label a puzzle. So and it's typically quite a kind of fine-grained or detailed question. It's not a question like, what is the Imago Dei? It's a question that's much more specific in nature because the, the natural sciences tend to be more specific in nature. And so it's a way of asking a question that moves us from these big general theological questions down to the to a type of question that, how can science help us understand X, Y, Z? How has it been when you've actually brought scientific ideas together with theology in your classes with your students? How do they receive it? Yeah, there's um, a couple of, yeah, it's, it's interesting to do. Um, the one of the, it's easy for me to think of some challenges. I think they really appreciate it, first of all. I'm going to start with that. They really, my students are really excited about interdisciplinarity. I mean, it kind of, everyone is kind of these days, but the students in particular really naturally want to do that. And so they really appreciate it, but it's immediately harder work, I think, than they think it's going to be. First of all, you have to understand both the theological article I've given them and the scientific article I've given them. And some students will be good at one and some at the other, typically. And and then trying to work out, but what do they actually mean for each other is really hard. And that's when the kind of discussion format of a lot of our teaching really comes to the fore, because as again, the different students have understood different articles better. And so they can really help each other, which is something I think is also really fun in this model. But there is also the other challenge is to not let the science as it were take over and and, and overstep its bounds. So they, they naturally tend to trust the science a lot more than they trust the theology. And 
but I think they can also be quite frustrated in that they want to use it to answer all their questions when it's not a particular study isn't answering all their questions, it's answering one particular question in normally a fairly statistical kind of way. So it hasn't even proved anything with absolute philosophical certainty. It's just kind of helped us gather more data about something and see a pattern, you know. So I think there's a, it's an interesting shift for them to naturally want to trust the science and use it like that. And then it not really working like that. So while you're teaching about some particular integrated topic, you're also doing this sort of meta lesson about the boundaries of certain kinds of research and knowledge and yeah typically we have done some meta stuff at the beginning of the course Mm -hmm. um, and then this kind of actual lived example they they don't necessarily realize that that's what I'm doing in the structure of the course but they tend to all come at the second half and we have tended to focus on more psychology or at least mind related issues in that second half so we we look at um say the science of happiness and then theological understandings of joy and uh, and well-being and trying to bring studies like the famous longitudinal harvard study right about what makes us happy in life together with kind of yeah theological treatments on what it means to have the spirit of joy right Um, Mm. yeah are there any other examples that you could share like that sure we do a week on mental illness so um, I would love to be able to do a whole course on mental illness, but we can only do one week in this course. So we typically focus on depression and think about different ways of trying to understand depression as as kind of just a chemical imbalance and there's nothing else going on or some ideas about it being a punishment from God or the effect of sin in a person's life or even demon possession and trying. And then we look at, so we look at different literature on that and and in many ways, try to critique where there needs to be critique, but also allow for a kind of nuanced view where a person's whole life and whole spirituality can become part of the conversation. So whilst affirming the kind of physical basis and the medical basis, also saying that people need to make meaning out of their lives. And if you tell them that there's nothing going on except chemical imbalance it's very hard to make meaning out of that Mm -hmm. and so there needs to be both actually a kind of spiritual component and a physical component even whilst we might be quite critical of say blaming someone or or identifying it with demons too quickly and that sort of thing totally totally yeah that's really nuanced work and you sort of like go over to the science side and like learn some stuff and then you're like going over here to the theological side and making sure they don't like overstep their boundaries. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I hope you get to teach a whole course one day on mental mental illness. Yeah, I think so. I think because every mental illness needs to be treated differently, I think. And sure. depression is just one of the ones that's got a bit more clear literature on it and it is easier to, to grasp, I think, for the students. But I would love to look more at the, you know, the history of kind of hearing voices and and religion, as well as, say, fasting and eating disorders or addictions. Yeah. There's all sorts of interesting stuff to explore. Oh, my gosh, that'd be so interesting. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing a little bit of work on eating disorders. So. Oh, wow. But there's a slow build. That one's like always in the background yeah. on a slow build. Yeah. And I know there's some, I've only been exposed to a little bit of it, but there's some really interesting stuff about hearing voices and yeah people who like to just learn to live with it and all kinds mm. of stuff it's really interesting and I, and I think there's some stuff where like even though 
the person and even the doctor say might agree this is spiritually significant or this you know the church might say no this really is god in a person's life sometimes if you medicate the person the voices still go away yeah so it's just it's not like either or you know totally are there any other like overarching principles that you find yourself that have become salient now that you've been doing this for a little while and just sort of engaging theology and science or I mean, in terms of practical wisdom, I mean, this was told to me, but it just proves more and more true, which is that just it really helps to know other people, not just read other literature and have conversations with people and they can explain things to you. And I find that saves me so much time because you can wade through all these articles and books and not kind of understand half of it at best if you're doing really well. Or you can just go for a beer with someone and then and you get it. And if you don't understand it, you can ask a question, you know, a clarifying question. It's so much more fun as well. Mm-hmm, um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, academia works that way. We, we're not alone in our little ivory towers. Well, we are at the moment because of, <laughs> of COVID, but in theory, we're not. We're little communities trying to figure stuff out together. And that's how it should be. Am I correct that you're ordained or seeking ordination? Yeah, I've yeah, I'm on a little bit of a pause, but I have I'm halfway through my training. Yeah. Oh wow, cool. Are there any significant pastoral implications for the work you're doing? I would say that ministers don't need to be scared of science and religion or of science, and they can embrace it. But they also probably shouldn't embrace it too quickly without good knowledge, because <laughs> bad science from the pulpit is the worst. Um, <laughs> But they don't need to be scared of it. I mean, I just think it's not something to lose your faith over. And it is a tragedy that people do because there are things to lose your faith over, but science is just not one of them. <laughs> so, I mean, yeah, I think if we can get that message out there, that would be great. And instead, science and theology and Christianity can have can help each other. I mean, really, my work is just going to be so enhanced and, and so a sermon could be so enhanced by a little bit of science if it was done well. Ask the scientist in your congregation if it's okay before you say it, maybe. But it can really impact people and show that God, God's real. God touches down in the real physical world and isn't just like an abstract idea. I think it can be really powerful for people. So yeah, that would be my be bold kind of message. Cool. Your call to action. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and I'm just thinking like you're the... The work you've done in researching autism and understanding autism so deeply, it's just a way of knowing how to love and serve people better, you know, rather than in a vague sort of, you know, stereotypical way or something where you have these like, you know, these incomplete ideas of what a person is like based on some aspect of them like they have autism, Uh, but there could be other categories where that could be applicable if you have people in your congregation who you know absolutely and I think it's just yeah important we don't put people on the you know on the edge of church just because say as sometimes happens with autism they then they need a long time to decompress after the socializing and the chaos and the sensory chaos of, of a church experience and so they can't go to like four services a week and so they don't they seem like a lesser Christian and, and that's just not the case it's just very taxing it's that I think some of that for example and help and helping us to understand that and see that and not judge yeah you know if they're not the most gregarious outgoing naturally friendly person that doesn't make them less christian either you know we have all of these all of these systems for judging one another even in church that 
really need to be dismantled if we're to love each other well. It's hard to shake. Thank you so much, Joanna. This is really good. It's really nice to talk to you. This podcast is brought to you by Blueprint 1543. Learn more about our mission, vision, and resources at blueprint1543.org. I'm Sari Martin Concepcion.